0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Protecting endangered and threatened species hinges on making private landowners partners in rather than victims of federal conservation efforts. Megan Jenkins directs research at the Center for Growth and Opportunity. We spoke last month in Las Vegas about potential solutions to turning private landowners into partners for the benefit of conserving species. When Joe Biden says that he wants to conserve 30% of the land mass of the United States uh, by 2030, what does he mean?
1: So he's looking to engage in a massive conservation project to conserve more of our nation's beautiful landscape, our natural resources. But what he really needs to be considering and what the administration should consider is the importance of private lands in that discussion. Private lands are really crucial to meeting our conservation goals.
0: All right. So uh, what do people misunderstand about conservation that they should know?
1: So, When most people think of conservation, I think they think of beautiful landscapes like Yellowstone National Park. It's just to the north of where I live in Logan, Utah. And it's an incredible landscape, to be sure. There are massive waterfalls and geysers. But real conservation is also happening in less glamorous places like private ranches, farmlands across America. These places are home to over 50% of America's forests, over 30% of our drinking water, and almost all of our endangered species actually rely on Private lands in order to survive.
0: Okay. Now, let's understand some of the details of that for endangered species. Um, what is it about private lands or public lands, for that matter, that makes it difficult for endangered species to function within them or through them?
1: Sure. So, federal lands, one way to think of them is the most scenic places in America. I think that's certainly true. But another way to think of them as is the leftovers kind of of what was less productive lands when the West was settled. So most of the places with water, with really productive soil, was settled by private settlers for farming and ranching. And that's why species and biodiversity tend to be concentrated in these areas where there are streams, there are forests, and our endangered species need those resources to survive.
0: Okay, so it it may be true then that Productive land is is far more valuable for endangered species than unproductive land.
1: That's right. On average, that's right.
0: Okay, so uh, what is the value that private landowners are not delivering that they could?
1: So private landowners are already delivering a lot of value in conservation, and I want to be clear on that. They're already important conservation partners, but we could do more with our public policy to really uh, engage them in discussions about conservation Some of our current policy tools, like the Endangered Species Act—it's been a subject of my research for years now—it has some of the most bipartisan support of any law in America, but it also creates unintended consequences that harm the very thing it's meant to protect, creates a regulatory burden on landowners, so that if I'm a rancher, I find a wolf on my land, I don't have an incentive to tell anyone about it, and I certainly don't have an incentive to help it survive there. So there are ways that we can move towards a less punitive, more cooperative type of conservation that would be a win-win for everyone.
0: What is the uh, phrase I hear, uh, if you discover an endangered species on your land, like if you tell people about it, the results are almost universally punitive?
1: Right. They call it shoot, shovel, and shut up. So the incentive to get rid of that species, cover up any evidence it was ever there.
0: And and that's not? good or bad, it's just the incentive that landowners face.
1: Right. Right. That's the behavior that we are encouraging through the institutions that we've created.
0: So what are some policy changes that would make landowners more partners in preserving species?
1: So one policy tool we've looked at is called conservation easements. And this is actually an extremely common tool used across the U.S., landowners donate the right to develop their land so they say i'm going to give up any right to develop this field and in exchange they get financial benefits for doing that right the reason for this is to create environmental benefits perhaps it's an important species for the sage grouse and a nonprofit wants to manage that land and make sure that it can provide that habitat
0: all right that's one
1: that's one example there are others Like conservation banking. This is really kind of a a market for conservation. Basically, landowners can donate their land to a conservation bank that then manages that land for particular outcomes. Um, And then developers can purchase credits in a conservation bank to offset any harm that they may be having to a particular endangered species.
0: What incentives do state and federal agencies face when it comes to? Uh, allowing this kind of uh, innovation in conservation?
1: That's a good question. It is um, Fish and Wildlife Service that is negotiating these conservation easements, and they're also involved in banking and determining what counts as one credit. There's been a lot of discussion at the regulatory level about clarifying what, what does a credit mean. And I think if we got more clarity there, we could attract more investment into conservation banking.
0: I have also heard that there is uh there's a distinction that ought to be drawn that uh federal regulators do not really draw when it comes to the Endangered Species Act, and that is uh in a, a, a species that might be threatened versus endangered. And right. th- that is a distinction that that I don't think federal agencies really make, um, but the the, the Endangered Species Act spells out.
1: That's correct. And there's been some debate about this and some changes in recent years. Uh, The Trump administration had released rules that would require fish and wildlife to treat uh, threatened species differently than endangered species. And this would be in line actually with the text of the Endangered Species Act itself. Those changes were recently rolled back. So now we're actually treating them the same again. And we at CGO wrote a regulatory comment on this topic along the lines of what you're saying, that you know, if there's no reward for helping a species recover to the point that it's no longer endangered, but it's threatened, then what's the incentive to help them for landowners to help species recover? If they're all treated the same, that creates the incentive of, well, you know, there's no reward for me to help them. So,
0: And if you're a landowner, you'd much rather have recovered species on your land than threatened or endangered.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Under, under current law. Right, because then you would face uh, lighter regulatory restrictions.
0: Going forward, what hope is there that there is a change afoot with respect to how we protect these animals?
1: The Biden administration did release a report last May. It's called America the Beautiful, and it talks about eight principles for 30 by 30. How do we get to 30 by 30? And some of them were very encouraging. One of them was along the lines of respecting local landowners and engaging private lands with these incentive-based policy tools. So we're hoping that that won't just be talk, that it will actually be action that will be followed through on so that we can treat private landowners like the important conservation partners that they are.
0: Megan Jenkins directs research at the Center for Growth and Opportunity. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Podcast.